This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Exhibit Piece by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Mark Turetsky, and we'll be discussing it afterwards. The story runs 40 minutes. Exhibit Piece by Philip K. Dick. Read for you by Mark Turetsky. That's a strange suit you have on, the robot pub trans driver observed. It slid back its door and came to rest at the curb. What are the little round things? Those are buttons, George Miller explained. They are partly functional, partly ornamental. This is an archaic suit of the 20th century. I wear it because of the nature of my employment. He paid the robot, grabbed up his briefcase, and hurried along the ramp to the history agency. The main building was already open for the day. Robed men and women wandered everywhere. Miller entered a private lift, squeezed between two immense controllers from the pre-Christian division, and in a moment was on his way to his own level, the middle 20th century. Gorning, he murmured, as Controller Fleming met him at the Atomic Engine exhibit. Gorning? Fleming responded brusquely. Look here, Miller. Let's have this out once and for all. What if everybody dressed like you? The government sets up strict rules for dress. Can't you forget your damn anachronisms once in a while? What in God's name is that thing in your hand? It looks like a squashed Jurassic lizard. This is an alligator hide briefcase, Miller explained. I carry my study spools in it. The briefcase was an authority symbol of the managerial class of the latter 20th century. He unzipped the briefcase. Try to understand, Fleming, by accustoming myself to everyday objects of my research period, I transform my relation from mere intellectual curiosity to genuine empathy. You have frequently noticed I pronounce certain words oddly. The accent is that of an American businessman of the Eisenhower administration. Dig me? Eh? Fleming muttered. Dig me was a 20th century expression. Miller laid out his study spools on his desk. Was there anything you wanted? If not, I'll begin today's work. I've uncovered fascinating evidence to indicate that although 20th century Americans laid their own floor tiles, they did not weave their own clothing. I wish to alter my exhibits on this matter. There's no fanatic like an academician, Fleming grated. You're 200 years behind the times, immersed in your relics and artifacts, your damn authentic replicas of discarded trivia. I love my work, Miller answered mildly. Nobody complains about your work, but there are other things than work. You're a political social unit here in this society. Take warning, Miller. The board has reports on your eccentricities. They approve devotion to work. His eyes narrowed significantly. But you go too far. My first loyalty is to my art, Miller said. Your what? What does that mean? A 20th century term? 
There was undisguised superiority on Miller's face. You're nothing but a minor bureaucrat in a vast machine. You're a function of an impersonal cultural totality. You have no standards of your own. In the 20th century, men had personal standards of workmanship, artistic craft, pride of accomplishment. These words mean nothing to you. You have no soul. Another concept from the golden days of the 20th century when men were free and could speak their minds. Beware, Miller. Fleming blanched nervously and lowered his voice. You damn scholars, come up out of your tapes and face reality. You'll get us all in trouble talking this way. Idolize the past if you want, but remember, it's gone and buried. Times change. Society progresses. He gestured impatiently at the exhibits that occupied the level. That's only an imperfect replica. You impugn my research? Miller was seething. This exhibit is absolutely accurate. I correct it to all new data. There isn't anything I don't know about the 20th century. Fleming shook his head. It's no use. He turned and stalked wearily off the level onto the descent ramp. Miller straightened his collar and bright hand-painted necktie. He smoothed down his blue pinstripe coat, expertly lit a pipeful of two-century-old tobacco, and returned to his spools. Why didn't Fleming leave him alone? Fleming, the officious representative of the great hierarchy that spread like a sticky gray web over the whole planet, into each industrial, professional, and residential unit. Ah, the freedom of the 20th century. He slowed his tape scanner a moment, and a dreamy look slid over his features. The exciting age of virility and individuality, when men were men. It was just about then, just as he was settling deep in the beauty of his research, that he heard the inexplicable sounds. They came from the center of his exhibit, from within the intricate, carefully regulated interior. Someone was in his exhibit. He could hear them back there, back in the depths. Somebody or something had got past the safety barrier set up to keep the public out. Miller snapped off his tape scanner and got slowly to his feet. He was shaking all over as he moved cautiously toward the exhibit. He killed the barrier and climbed the railing onto a concrete sidewalk. A few curious visitors blinked as the small, oddly dressed man crept along the authentic replicas of the 20th century that made up the exhibit and disappeared within. Breathing hard, Miller advanced up the sidewalk and onto a carefully tended gravel path. Maybe it was one of the other theorists, a minion of the board, snooping around looking for something with which to discredit him. An inaccuracy here, a trifling error of no consequence there. Sweat came out on his forehead. Anger became terror. To his right was a flower bed, Paul scarlet roses and low-growing pansies. Then the moist green lawn, the gleaming white garage with its door half up, the sleek rear of a 1954 Buick.
and then the house itself. He had to be careful. If it was somebody from the board, he'd be up against the official hierarchy. Maybe it was somebody big. Maybe even Edwin Carnap, president of the board, the highest-ranking official in the New York branch of the World Directorate. Shakily, Miller climbed the three cement steps. Now he was on the porch of the 20th century house that made up the center of the exhibit. It was a nice little house. If he had lived back in those days, he would have wanted one of his own. Three bedrooms, a ranch-style California bungalow. He pushed open the front door and entered the living room. Fireplace at one end. Dark wine-colored carpets, modern couch and easy chair. Low hardwood glass-topped coffee table, copper ashtrays, a cigarette lighter, and a stack of magazines. Sleek plastic and steel floor lamps, a bookcase, television set, picture window overlooking the front garden. He crossed the room to the hall. The house was amazingly complete. Below his feet, the floor furnace radiated a faint aura of warmth. He peered into the first bedroom, a woman's boudoir, silk bed cover, white starched sheets, heavy drapes, a vanity table, bottles and jars, huge round mirror, clothes visible within the closet, a dressing gown thrown over the back of a chair, slippers, nylon hose carefully placed at the foot of the bed. Miller moved down the hall and peered into the next room. Brightly painted wallpaper, clowns and elephants and tightrope walkers. The children's room. Two little beds for the two boys. Model airplanes. A dresser with a radio on it. A pair of combs. School books. Pennants. A no-parking sign. Snapshots stuck in the mirror. A postage stamp album. Nobody there, either. Miller peered in the modern bathroom, even in the yellow-tiled shower. He passed through the dining room, glanced down the basement stairs where the washing machine and dryer were. Then he opened the back door and examined the backyard, a lawn, and the incinerator, a couple of small trees, and then the three-dimensional projected backdrop of other houses receding off into incredibly convincing blue hills. And still, no one. The yard was empty, deserted. He closed the door and started back. From the kitchen came laughter. A woman's laugh. The clink of spoons and dishes and smells. It took him a moment to identify them, a scholar that he was. Bacon and coffee and hotcakes. Somebody was eating breakfast, a 20th century breakfast. He made his way down the hall, past a man's bedroom, shoes and clothing strewn about to the entrance of the kitchen. A handsome late 30-ish woman and two teenage boys were sitting around the little chrome and plastic breakfast table. They had finished eating. The two boys were fidgeting impatiently. Sunlight filtered through the window over the sink. The electric clock read half-past eight. The radio was chirping merrily in the corner. A big pot of black coffee rested in the center of the table, surrounded by empty plates and milk glasses and silverware. 
The woman had on a white blouse and checkered tweed skirt. Both boys wore faded blue jeans, sweatshirts, and tennis shoes. As yet, they hadn't noticed him. Miller stood frozen at the doorway while laughter and small talk bubbled around him. You'll have to ask your father, the woman was saying with mock sternness. Wait until he comes back. He already said we could, one of the boys protested. Well, ask him again. He's always grouchy in the morning. Not today. He had a good night's sleep. His hay fever didn't bother him. That new anti-hiss the doctor gave him. She glanced up at the clock. Go see what's keeping him, Don. He'll be late to work. He was looking for the newspaper. One of the boys pushed back his chair and got up. It missed the porch and fell in the flowers. He turned toward the door, and Miller found himself confronting him face to face. Briefly, the observation passed through his mind that the boy looked familiar. Damn familiar, like somebody he knew, only younger. He tensed himself for the impact as the boy abruptly halted. Gee, the boy said, you scared me. The woman glanced quickly up at Miller. What are you doing out there, George? She demanded. Come on back in here and finish your coffee. Miller came slowly into the kitchen. The woman was finishing her coffee. Both boys were on their feet and beginning to press around him. Didn't you tell me I could go camping over the weekend up at Russian River with the group from school? Don demanded. You said I could borrow a sleeping bag from the gym because the one I had you gave to the Salvation Army because you were allergic to the K-Pok in it. Y yeah, Miller muttered uncertainly. Don, that was the boy's name, and his brother, Ted. But how did he know that? At the table, the woman had got up and was collecting the dirty dishes to carry over to the sink. They said you already promised them, she said over her shoulder. The dishes clattered into the sink, and she began sprinkling soap flakes over them. But you remember that time they wanted to drive the car, and the way they said it, you'd think they had your okay, and they hadn't, of course. Miller sank weakly down at the table. Aimlessly, he fooled with the pipe. He set it down in the copper ashtray and examined the cuff of his coat. What was happening? His head spun. He got up abruptly and hurried to the window over the sink. Houses. Streets. The distant hills beyond the town. The sights and sounds of people. The three-dimensional projected backdrop was utterly convincing. Or was it the projected backdrop? How could he be sure? What was happening? George, what's the matter? Marjorie asked as she tied a pink plastic apron around her waist and began running hot water in the sink. You better get the car out and get started to work. Weren't you saying last night old man Davidson was shouting about employees being late for work and standing around the water cooler talking and having a good time on company time? Davidson. The word stuck in Miller's mind. He knew it, of course. A clear picture leapt up. A tall, white-haired old man, 
thin and stern, vest and pocket watch, and the whole office United Electronic Supply, the 12-story building in downtown San Francisco, the newspaper and cigar stand in the lobby, the honking cars, jammed parking lots, the elevator packed with bright-eyed secretaries, tight sweaters, and perfume. He wandered out of the kitchen, through the hall, past his own bedroom, his wife's, and into the living room. The front door was open, and he stepped out onto the porch. The air was cool and sweet. It was a bright April morning. The lawns were still wet. Cars moved down Virginia Street toward Shattuck Avenue. Early morning commuting traffic. Businessmen on their way to work. Across the street, Earl Kelly cheerfully waved his Oakland Tribune as he hurried down the sidewalk toward the bus stop. A long way off, Miller could see the Bay Bridge, Yerba Buena Island, and Treasure Island. Beyond that was San Francisco itself. In a few minutes, he'd be shooting across the bridge in his Buick, on his way to the office, along with thousands of other businessmen in blue pinstripe suits. Ted pushed past him and out on the porch. Then it's okay? You don't mind if we go camping? Miller licked his dry lips. Ted, listen to me. There's something strange. Like what? I don't know. Miller wandered nervously around on the porch. This is Friday, isn't it? Sure. I thought it was. But how did he know it was Friday? How did he know anything? But of course it was Friday. A long, hard week, old man Davidson breathing down his neck. Wednesday especially, when the General Electric order was slowed down because of a strike. Let me ask you something, Miller said to his son. This morning, I left the kitchen to get the newspaper. Ted nodded. Yeah, so? I got up and went out of the room. How long was I gone? Not long, was I? He searched for words, but his mind was a maze of disjointed thoughts. I was sitting at the breakfast table with you all, and then I got up and went to look for the paper, right? And then I came back in, right? His voice rose desperately. I got up and shaved and dressed this morning. I ate breakfast, hotcakes and coffee, bacon, right? Right, Ted agreed. So? like I always do. We only have hotcakes on Friday. Miller nodded slowly. That's right. Hotcakes on Friday, because your Uncle Frank eats with us Saturday and Sunday, and he can't stand hotcakes, so we stopped having them on weekends. Frank is Marjorie's brother. He was in the Marines in the First World War. He was a corporal. Goodbye. Ted said, as Don came out to join him. We'll see you this evening. School books clutched, the boys sauntered off towards the big modern high school in the center of Berkeley. Miller re-entered the house and automatically began searching the closet for his briefcase. Where was it? Damn it, he needed it.
The whole Throckmorton account was in it. Davidson would be yelling his head off if he left it anywhere, like in the True Blue Cafeteria that time they were all celebrating the Yankees winning the series. Where the hell was it? He straightened up slowly as memory came. Of course, he had left it by his work desk where he had tossed it after taking out the research tapes. While Fleming was talking to him back at the history agency... He joined his wife in the kitchen. Look, he said huskily, Marjorie, I think maybe I won't go down to the office this morning. Marjorie spun in alarm. George, is anything wrong? I'm completely confused. Your hay fever again? No, my mind... What's the name of that psychiatrist the PTA recommended when Mrs. Bentley's kid had that fit? He searched his organized brain. Grunberg, I think, in the medical dental building. He moved toward the door. I'll drop by and see him. Something's wrong, really wrong, and I don't know what it is. Adam Grunberg was a large, heavy-set man in his late forties with curly brown hair and horn-rimmed glasses. After Miller had finished, Grunberg cleared his throat, brushed at the sleeve of his Brooks Brothers suit, and asked thoughtfully, Did anything happen while you were out looking for the newspaper? Any sort of accident? You might try going over that part in detail. You got up from the breakfast table, went out on the porch, and started looking around in the bushes. And then what? Miller rubbed his forehead vaguely. I don't know. It's all confused. I don't remember looking for any newspaper. I remember coming back in the house. Then it gets clear. But before that, it's all tied up with the history agency and my quarrel with Fleming. What was that again about your briefcase? Go over that. A Fleming said it looked like a squashed Jurassic lizard, and I said, no, I mean about looking for it in the closet and not finding it. I looked in the closet, and it wasn't there, of course. It's sitting beside my desk at the history agency on the 20th century level by my exhibits. A strange expression crossed Miller's face. Good God, Grunberg, you realize this may be nothing but an exhibit? You and everybody else. Maybe you're not real, just pieces of this exhibit. That wouldn't be very pleasant for us, would it? Grunberg said with a faint smile. People in dreams are always secure until the dreamer wakes up. Miller retorted. So you're dreaming me? Grunberg laughed tolerantly. I suppose I should thank you. I'm not here because I especially like you. I'm here because I can't stand Fleming and the whole history agency. Grunberg pondered. This Fleming, are you aware of thinking about him before you went out looking for the newspaper? 
Miller got to his feet and paced around the luxurious office, between the leather-covered chairs and the huge mahogany desk. I want to face this thing. I'm in an exhibit, an artificial replica of the past. Fleming said something like this would happen to me. Sit down, Mr. Miller, Grunberg said in a gentle but commanding voice. When Miller had taken his chair again, Grunberg continued. I understand what you say. You have a general feeling that everything around you is unreal, a sort of stage. An exhibit. Yes, an exhibit in a museum. In the New York History Agency, level R, the 20th century level. And in addition to this general feeling of uh, insubstantiality, there are specific projected memories of persons and places beyond this world, another realm in which this one is contained. Perhaps I should say, uh, the reality within which this is is only a sort of shadow world. This world doesn't look shadowy to me. Miller struck the leather arm of the chair savagely. This world is completely real. That's what's wrong. I came in to investigate the noises, and now I can't get back out. Good God, do I have to wander around this replica the rest of my life? You know, of course, that your feeling is common to most of mankind, especially during periods of great tension. Where, by the way, was the newspaper? Did you find it? As far as I'm concerned, is that a source of irritation with you? I see you react strongly to a mention of the newspaper. Miller shook his head wearily. Forget it. Yes, a trifle. The paper boy carelessly throws the newspaper in the bushes, not on the porch. It makes you angry. It happens again and again, early in the day, just as you're starting to work. It seems to symbolize, in a small way, the whole petty frustrations and defeats of your job, your whole life. Personally, I don't give a damn about the newspaper. Miller examined his wristwatch. I'm going. It's almost noon. Old man Davidson will be yelling his head off if I'm not at the office by... He broke off. There it is again. There what is? All this! Miller gestured impatiently out the window. This whole place, this damn world, this exhibition. I have a thought, Dr. Grunberg said slowly. I'll put it to you for what it's worth. Feel free to reject it if it doesn't fit. He raised his shrewd professional eyes. Ever see kids playing with rocket ships? Lord, Miller said wretchedly. I've seen commercial rocket freighters hauling cargo between Earth and Jupiter, landing at LaGuardia Spaceport. Grunberg smiled slightly. Follow me through on this. A question. Is it job tension? What do you mean? It would be nice, Grunberg said blandly, to live in a world of tomorrow with robots and rocket ships to do all the work. You could just sit back and take it easy. No worries, no cares, no frustrations. My position in the history agency has plenty of cares and frustrations. 
Miller rose abruptly. Look, Grunberg, either this is an exhibit on our level of the history agency, or I'm a middle-class businessman with an escape fantasy. Right now I can't decide on which. One minute I think it's real, and the next minute... We can decide easily, Grunberg said. How? You were looking for the newspaper, down the path, onto the lawn. Where did it happen? Was it on the path, on the porch? Try to remember. I don't have to try. I was still on the sidewalk. I had just jumped over the rail past the safety screens. On the sidewalk. Then go back there. Find the exact place. Why? So you can prove to yourself there's nothing on the other side. Miller took a deep, slow breath. Suppose there is. There can't be. You said yourself, only one of the worlds can be real. This world is real. Grunberg thumped his massive mahogany desk. Ego, you won't find anything on the other side. Yes, Miller said after a moment's silence. A peculiar expression cut across his face and stayed there. You found the mistake. What mistake? Grunberg was puzzled. What? Miller moved toward the door of the office. I'm beginning to get it. I've been putting up a false question, trying to remember which world is real. He grinned humorlessly back at Dr. Grunberg. They're both real, of course. He grabbed a taxi and headed back to the house. No one was home. The boys were in school and Marjorie had gone downtown to shop. He waited indoors until he was sure nobody was watching along the street, and then started down the path to the sidewalk. He found the spot without any trouble. There was a faint shimmer in the air, a weak place just at the edge of the parking strip. Through it, he could see faint shapes. He was right. There it was, complete and real, as real as the sidewalk under him. A long, metallic bar was cut off by the edges of the circle. He recognized it, the safety railing he had leapt over to enter the exhibit. Beyond it was the safety screen system, turned off, of course. And beyond that, the rest of the level and the far walls of the history building. He took a cautious step into the weak haze. It shimmered around him, misty and oblique. The shapes beyond became clearer. A moving figure in a dark blue robe. Some curious person examining the exhibits. The figure moved on and was lost. He could see his own work desk now, his tape scanner and heaps of study spools. Beside the desk was his briefcase, exactly where he had expected it. While he was considering stepping over the railing to get the briefcase, Fleming appeared. Some inner instinct made Miller step back through the weak spot as Fleming approached. Maybe it was the expression on Fleming's face. In any case, Miller was back and standing firmly on the concrete sidewalk when Fleming halted just beyond the juncture, face red, lips twisting with indignation. Miller, he said thickly, come out of there. Miller laughed. 
Be a good fellow, Fleming. Toss me my briefcase. It's that strange-looking thing over by the desk. I showed it to you, remember? Stop playing games and listen to me, Fleming snapped. This is serious. Carnap knows. I had to inform him. Good for you, the loyal bureaucrat. Miller bent over to light his pipe. He inhaled and puffed a great cloud of gray tobacco smoke through the weak spot, out into the R-level. Fleming coughed and retreated. What's that stuff? he demanded. Tobacco. One of the things they have around here. Very common substance in the 20th century. You wouldn't know about that. Your period is 2nd century BC, the Hellenistic world. I don't know how well you'd like that. They didn't have very good plumbing back there. Life expectancy was damn short. What are you talking about? In comparison, the life expectancy of my research period is quite high. And you should see the bathroom I've got. Yellow tile and a shower. We don't have anything like that at the agency leisure quarters. Fleming grunted sourly. In other words... You're going to stay in there. It's a pleasant place, Miller said easily. Of course, my position is better than average. Let me describe it for you. I have an attractive wife. Marriage is permitted, even sanctioned in this era. I have two fine kids, both boys, who are going up to Russian River this weekend. They live with me and my wife. We have complete custody of them. The state has no power of that yet. I have a brand new Buick. Illusions, Fleming spat. Psychotic delusions. Are you sure? You damn fool! I always knew you were too ego-recessive to face reality. You and your anachronistic retreats. Sometimes I'm ashamed I'm a theoretician. I wish I had gone into engineering. Fleming's lip twitched. You're insane, you know. You're standing in the middle of an artificial exhibit, which is owned by the History Agency, a bundle of plastic and wire and struts, a replica of a past age, an imitation, and you'd rather be there than in the real world. Strange, Miller said thoughtfully. Seems to me I've heard the same thing very recently. You don't know a Dr. Grunberg, do you? A psychiatrist? Without formality, Director Carnap arrived with his company of assistants and experts. Fleming quickly retreated. Miller found himself facing one of the most powerful figures of the 22nd century. He grinned and held out his hand. You insane imbecile. Carnap rumbled. Get out of there before we drag you out. If we have to do that, you're through. You know what they do with advanced psychotics. It'll be euthanasia for you. I'll give you one last chance to come out of that fake exhibit. Sorry, Miller said. It's not an exhibit. Carnap's heavy face registered sudden surprise. For a brief instant, his massive poise vanished. You still try to maintain... This is a time gate, Miller said quietly. <laughs>
You can't get me out, Carnap. You can't reach me. I'm in the past, two hundred years back. I've crossed back to a previous existence coordinate. I found a bridge and escaped from your continuum to this, and there's nothing you can do about it. Carnap and his experts huddled together in a quick technical conference. Miller waited patiently. He had plenty of time. He had decided not to show up at the office until Monday. After a while, Carnap approached the juncture again, being careful not to step over the safety railing. An interesting theory, Miller. That's the strange part about psychotics. They rationalize their delusions into a logical system, a priori. Your concept stands up well. It's internally consistent. Only... Only what? Only it doesn't happen to be true. Carnap had regained his confidence. He seemed to be enjoying the interchange. You think you're really back in the past. Yes, this exhibit is extremely accurate. Your work has always been good. The authenticity of detail is unequaled by any of the other exhibits. I tried to do my work well, Miller murmured. You wore archaic clothing and affected archaic speech mannerisms. You did everything possible to throw yourself back. You devoted yourself to your work. Carnap tapped the safety railing with his fingernail. It would be a shame, Miller, a terrible shame to demolish such an authentic replica. There was silence. I see your point, Miller said after a time. I agree with you, certainly. I've been very proud of my work. I'd hate to see it all torn down. But that really won't do you any good. All you'll succeed in doing is closing the time gate. You're sure? Of course, the exhibit is only a bridge, a link with the past. I passed through the exhibit, but I'm not there now. I'm beyond the exhibit. He grinned tightly. Your demolition can't reach me, but seal me off if you want. I don't think I'll be wanting to come back. I wish you could see this side, Carnap. Freedom, opportunity, limited government, responsible to the people. If you don't like a job here, you can quit. There's no euthanasia here. Come on over. I'll introduce you to my wife. We'll get you, Carnap said. And all your psychotic figments along with you. I doubt if any of my psychotic figments are worried. Grunberg wasn't. I don't think Marjorie is. We've already begun demolition preparations, Carnap said calmly. We'll do it piece by piece, not all at once. So you may have the opportunity to appreciate the scientific and artistic way we take your imaginary world and people apart. You're wasting your time, Miller said. He turned and walked off down the sidewalk to the gravel path and up onto the front porch of his house. 
In the living room, he threw himself down in the easy chair and snapped on the television set. Then he went to the kitchen and got a can of ice-cold beer from the refrigerator. He carried it happily back into the safe, comfortable living room. As he was seating himself in front of the television set, he noticed something rolled up on the low coffee table. He grinned wryly. It was the morning newspaper, which he had looked so hard for. Marjorie had brought it in with the milk, as usual, and of course forgotten to tell him. He yawned contentedly and reached over to pick it up. Languidly, confidently, he unfolded it and read the big black headlines. Russia reveals cobalt bomb. Total world destruction ahead. The end. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny. I'm Misa. I'm Mark Taretsky. And we're going to be talking about the story we just heard called Exhibit Piece by Philip K. Dick. So, uh, I'd never read this story before you recorded it, Mark. Oh, me either. Really? <laughs> I hadn't read it either. Yeah, me neither. I just, I just went in and no prep, just banged it right out. You? <laughs> God, no. Okay, because I was like, so there's parts of it that were confusing near the beginning with the dialogue. I do, like, he'll start a paragraph and while you're reading it on the page, right? it's, right. it's like, uh, who's talking here? And you, it was obvious to me that you had pre-read it because you made it very clear who was right yeah by using that voice uh, but the hi i'm i'm the main character sort of guy right yeah he was he was he's uh oh boy yeah <laughs> um it's uh it's not bad i think it's pretty good actually yeah i and, go for it yeah I, I i i like the uh idea that if it is actually some kind of pocket universe that's he, that he's created or, 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 or he's gone through some kind of time portal, that the entire Cold War might just be a 22nd century office feud. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think of that. <laughs> oh, I, I got that more the second time around when I read it. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, it's, uh, it would make a lot... It, would, it, it makes a lot different reading now looking back at the 1950s than it does, I would bet, in 1954 when it, it came out. Right. Yeah. I, it, it, you don't get that from most uh, uh, science fiction of the 50s. You you sort of say, oh, it's very of its era, mm-hmm. and it doesn't add, you know, like, it, it seems like a lot more deep than I think Philip K. Dick intended, but I think that's the way he writes. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it It seems like it's got this uh, nostalgia for the 50s. Mm-hmm, uh, which is why he's writing it, right? Exactly, um, which is kind of neat. But, you know, it, it, it's like, um, well, the story ends and, you know, you've got this great, you know, 50s lifestyle that he's leading as a middle-class white guy. Um, but then there's this little reminder at the end and it's like yeah but you know nuclear annihilation it, it might happen 
which which was a reality for the people at the time. Now we know there wasn't a total destruction, as far as we can tell. There there wasn't a total destruction. Yeah, no cobalt uh, bomb. The Earth. Right. Yeah, and yet that was a fear at the time. You know, cobalt bombs were the were the boogeyman, sort of like I don't know whatever the boogeyman is now, but. Right. Uh, I, I think the boogeyman is a lot less. Whatever it is now, we don't think about you know total world destruction. Oh, oh, maybe it's global warming. Except maybe that threat is more likely to happen since it's actually happening. Right. Jesse, I don't think you've been listening to your fear propaganda well enough. <laughs> I, I think yeah, it's but, still part of the narrative. That's what I, makes North I, Korea so scary, right? And Iran. Well, <laughs> I, I think I think they are scary, and there there's lots of scary things. But, like, in comparison, we have it very easy, except for, like, you know, global warming, which I think actually is much much more likely to impact our lives uh, negatively, like a cobalt bomb would, than, than... I mean, the fear propaganda that we're having is definitely there. Sure. But if, you, if you've got this historical perspective, when you can read a story where people were actually worried about you know, cobalt bombs. Uh, you know, the way a cobalt bomb works is is you take a regular nuclear bomb and then you add cobalt, and cobalt will turn into a uh, radioactive fallout that has a couple of, uh, like a five-year half-life, and then uh, the, I think the thing it turns into in, after that half-life um, emits another um, gamma radiation or something. is like really... Design. It's a, a weapon designed to kill people, right? It's not a weapon designed to, you know, stop armies or, you know, cut off strategic, you know, deployments of military, ar- you know, navies or anything like that. It's it's about designing killing people, and so that you couldn't go into your shelter for five years and come out because after that five years there would be another set of radiation. And it's it's like. It's like a terror bomb in this in that sense, but luckily we don't seem to have had that happen to us. Very true. <laughs> so, so what did you think of this story? Uh, I I really liked the story, um, but I, I I kept getting confused whether um, like if he was being I, for a while there I thought he was being set up for this whole world like they were kind of uh, forcing him in there because they wanted to get rid of him. Huh. Like, because there's so many ways of interpreting it. Like, what was he doing in there? Did was was he in there on purpose? Um, you know, like, and and especially at the end, he was forced. He was almost forced to that spot where, um, that intersection between worlds, like from within the world, he was almost forced into that spot, and as if to say, okay, now you're where you want to be, and we're finally going to get rid of you. It's like being herded. Yeah, you, you, I felt like he was being herded through it. Yeah, like he was I a see troublemaker. that. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be saying that he's the one motivating it. But um, if you look at the actions of the other people, especially the parallels between the two, uh, the inside and the outside, right? There's the there's the big bad boss figure in both. Well, I guess not a big bad boss, in, but there's a authority figure on either side of that yeah, divide. Yeah, squash it, between two authority figures. Right. Yeah. And then there's the final authority figure, which is the newspaper. Which is the newspaper, which was really interesting. That Did you notice that when he opened the newspaper, he had the TV on? 
So it was like he was. Oh no, I didn't know. He was that. focusing on another reality or another like you know illusion, and he opened the newspaper, which was going to end this dream within a you know because at one point he, at one point one of the cool lines was something about. Um, you, the dreamer, the, the the dreamer doesn't know he's a dream until like the, the people in a dream die when the dreamer wakes up. And uh, yeah, the characters right, in a right. dream are are secure until yeah, the dreamer yeah, dies. And that that's like, like a, is that true? I don't know, but he seemed very confident. It was such it, a great he? line. And then he was watching TV, which is kind of like an, a dream kind of reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when he read the newspaper, and okay, that's the final end of it. Do you guys remember a few years ago, um, I'm probably dating myself by saying a few years ago, it was probably like 20 years ago, there was a, I think it was a trial, very famous television trial in New York or Los Angeles, one of the big cities, maybe Chicago, and there was a juror who uh, would wear a Star Trek uniform. <laughs> yes. To, yes. Do you remember that? It was like a next generation, so I, I guess it couldn't have been that that far. Yeah, they're trying to get out I of think, jury duty. <laughs> no, she wasn't trying to get out of jury duty. That's the funny part. Right? Yeah, that was in the in the Trekkies documentary. It was that's right. She was, uh, you know, it, it was her way of showing that she was very serious about it because uh, she wore her Star Trek uniform to work every day. Um, yeah, and and jury jury duty for her was a solemn duty. Exactly. That, you know, she was like the ideal juror if you talk to her hair, right? Or you, you talk to her head, I should say, not her hair. <laughs> if you talk to her head, not her uniform. But why, why would I talk to her hair? <laughs> Anyways, if you talk to her head, not her, her you know, uniform, you know, she she seemed like the ideal juror because she she was very interested in being there. She's very interested in justice. You know, she... Her whole philosophy is about, you know, trying to make the, uh, society like what Gene Roddenberry has of the future, right? Right. Which is, it's kind of an inverse version of what we've got in this story, where the guy is living in a dystopia. And although we don't get much of it, um, you know, of what, what that future 23rd century or whatever it is um, looks like, we do get enough to say it's, it's actually pretty horrible, yeah. right? And so this guy who wears this uniform of a businessman from the 1950s and, you know, espouses the values and the, the, the words, you know, uses the pronunciation of people from that time period. Um, it's, it's almost the same attitude as that woman, um, except it's in, in, in a reverse time, right? Yes. And she's, she's looking at a fictional time in the future wearing the uniform of that trying to live that he's living in the time of the writing of the story, but from a, a future about the same time as the Star Trek thing. Well, yeah. And for the same reasons too, because they think our world is insufficient. Their current world is insufficient um, in some great way. And I thought that was a very interesting. Uh, now she, the, the difference though is she's not, she wasn't delusional. She just was like, you know, earnest. <laughs> yes. And he was earnest up to a certain point. And then maybe he's delusional. Yeah. Is he delusional? Well, that's the, uh, that's, that's the funny thing about the ending, right? What do you think? What do you guys think? I think he found the crack in time. So <laughs> not delusional. 
Okay. It's possible. But then who, uh, if if he's not delusional, then how did they from the other side, you know, maneuver it that that this other reality is going to destruct? Well, um, if... If this isn't a bottled world, like inside, it's not a nested world, so that our main character is, uh, I'm, I should say Miller, not our main character. Right. If Miller is living inside of uh, the museum exhibit and, like, confabulating his wife and children, right, and I guess everything else in that, it's set, I he goes into work in San Francisco. Uh, Mark, you were saying it's set in Berkeley? Yeah, he's actually in Berkeley. Uh, okay. Uh, he talks about here, it's uh, cars move down Virginia Street towards Shattuck Avenue. Those are those are both in Bro- Berkeley. And you were you were just there recently, right? Yeah, uh, I was uh, I had a like two, three week long trip out west. And uh, for part of it, we were staying at um, my girlfriend's friend's place in Berkeley. And I, I I I plotted it out, um, and we were only like one mile away from where this story was set, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, I, you know, that I like the story, but I think that that might have been the clincher. It was like, oh well, you know, how fortuitous. I'm I'm uh, right yeah. here where the story is. Yeah. Well, it's it's in the San Francisco area. I'm not super familiar with the, but this is like it's in driving distance to San Francisco. Right? Yeah, I mean they share the same um, public transit system: Oakland, San Francisco, and Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, the pub <laughs> the trans. Right. Um, well, I I I think there's a couple of things. So going going to whether this is, how the universe would work, right? It's actually set in New York, which we assume is New York. Right. Um, but the house. I guess it is a museum in the museum is supposed to be in San Francisco because right? it's certainly not a 1950s house in New York. I, I right. would say it seems to be a little bit too big for that. Right. Yeah. So, te- technology is advanced enough where they have 3d backgrounds that look realistic. Yeah, I, guess, I guess that's right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, so if, if the, when they're shutting down the museum piece by piece or that part of the museum on level R, the 20th century exhibit. Um, that's his mind saying, you know what? The world's coming apart. <laughs> you know, that's the destruction of the H bomb um, or the uh, cobalt bomb. That it, it it leaves us questioning it. And the funny thing is, is if you read the Wikipedia entry for this story, which is very brief, it seems to be a little bit too um, a little bit too decisive on what's going on. It's not like that to me. So let me read the description here. Um, exhibit piece, 1954 science fiction story, uh, an early exploration of the concept of shifting realities, so common in the writer's later fiction, uh, also pretty common in his short stories. The protagonist is a future historian of the 20th century and finds himself shifting in the time from the future of that time period. At first, it's unclear whether he is merely a man from the past imagining the future or vice versa. Um, that doesn't sound exactly right to me. And then it says, the story is clearly resolved. And I'm like, Ooh. oh, really? Wow. <laughs> conventional device of a Citation time. Citation needed. Yeah. Explaining that the man is actually moved in time. And then 
unlike Dick's later fiction in which the concept of a fixed reality became increasingly ambiguous. And I think this person has very much skimmed the story. (laughs) Yes. Because... I I just thought of a a different interpretation that just came to me. You know, the entire story happens after Miller. He's called Miller both places, right? After Miller goes to look for the newspaper and comes back in. So Mm -hmm. you could kind of say, what if this really only happened in the 1950s? He -hmm. saw the headline the first time. His brain couldn't process it. He has a complete mental psychosis break that puts him in this other place trying to imagine a future that maybe won't happen. And then at the end, he picks the paper back up. But maybe he's already seen it. Dun, dun, dun. I think that that actually is probably the way it was read at the time. Yeah. Right. We're we're looking at it knowing that there was no destruction that our that we weren't going to pick up the we know if it, we're living in 1954 that if we pick up the newspaper it's not going to say total world destruction ahead. Right. right? Because right. we've we've lived up to this point. But yeah. it, that I think that actually is a, is exactly how it would we, would be read as the ambiguity there. And if you think about it, the the newspapers uh, missing, right? The fact that it's missing is seems to be like not important to the plot. But Philip K. Dick's a very smart writer, and in the past he has used the newspaper to do a lot of work in other stories. And in the, uh, I like, you know, Mark, if you had uh, told me you were going that place, I could have given you the address of his old house. Oh, okay. Driven by, he lived in a little house in in Berkeley, I think. Um, was it a uh, three bedroom California ranch style bungalow? It was not. <laughs> it was a very small house. Uh-huh. Um, not horrible or anything, but uh, he took the bus everywhere, which you sort of see in this story. <laughs> um, he he, uh, he walked to the to the dog food store and got some dog food for dinner. He says. <laughs> um, I think that's in between one of his couple of wives. Um, and the thing is, is that that world of of the neighborhood is really important. So when that newspaper comes, is supposed to come in the morning, according to Miller. Well, I was reading about uh, the, what paper it would have been. The daily paper um, uh, somewhere on online, I found uh, somebody had complained. I think it was uh, another science fiction writer about a mistake in the story. Mm-hmm. And that was that the paper would have been the Oakland Daily or something like that, right? Yeah, that's that's the paper his neighbor has uh, right. when he sees him. Right, but that's an afternoon paper. Oh. oh. At the time, it was an afternoon paper, so there wouldn't have been a morning paper. Wow, details. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as Philip K. Dick says, uh, well, I didn't get up until noon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a morning paper. <laughs> Which I think is pretty funny. It's pretty interesting. He said, I don't care about that paper. Um, but then the paper was the, the like the binding point. It's absolutely true. It, it, right. It's the- so it means that his uh, psychiatrist was right to focus on that and, and, mm-hmm. and it's just his evasion. That's right. We think he's we think he's right. But really, the psychiatrist is right. Could be. At least that's one interpretation. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm not sure about Miller, um, but I've come to 
look at all Philip K. Dick character names as suspect, you know, like, what does this really mean sort of thing. Um, there was a, uh, the boss, no, no, it was the Green, Greenberg, I think it was. Grunberg. Grunberg, which means Greenberg, right? It's, it's, right. It's, um, Grunberg was the psychiatrist, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But um, the there was a a director of the museum. I uh, can't remember his name. Uh, I, well, there's uh, Miller's colleague is Fleming, and then Fleming. there's and Carnap. Yeah. Yeah. So Fleming, I'm not sure. We could probably find something there, but only one I totally recognized was Carnap. Now, you, you, anybody know who Carnap was, the uh, philosopher? No. Nope. Nope. Okay, uh, Ru- Rudolf Carnap, um, very, uh, you know, not well known to, I think, the general public, but fairly well known and important to a lot of philosophers uh, today, thinking about what happened in the 20th century philosophy. He was involved with um, something called logical positivism, which was the attempt to solve all of uh, philosophical problems by creating an artificial language, uh, which was um, basically symbolic logic. So when you take a sentence like the the cat is on the mat, you um, sometimes will have problems of, of maybe the cat is on the mat is a little bit too simple, but sometimes we have these words in English where there's a slippage between the meaning that I put in it and the meaning that you extract from it. Mm-hmm. And so the, their idea was all problems of uh, philosophy are, pro- are caused by these slippages. So what we're going to do is assign symbols to everything. And then we can do uh, this stuff called natural deductive logic, which is basically like math, except for sentences. And they spent a lot of time working on this stuff and it was ended up being a giant failure. But, um, some of the language that's in this story is exactly from that. So let's see if I can bring it up here. Um, let's see. So Carnap comes out, and he's the big authority figure, right? And he says, let's see. Should have something here. Ah, Fleming's, Fleming's saying they're psychotic delusions, but that's not what... The big, uh, we'll get you. Okay, here we go. Carnap comes up. Of course, exhibit is only a bridge, a link with the past. I passed through the exhibit, but I'm not here now. I'm beyond the exhibit, he grinned tightly. Your demolition can't reach me, but seal me off if you want. I don't think I'll be want. This is Miller talking. I don't think I'll be wanting to come back. I wish you could see this side, Carnap. It's a nice place here. Freedom, opportunity, limited government, responsible to the people. If you don't like the job here, you quit. There's no euthanasia, no death, no death panels, right? There's going to be a death panel for him. Um, come over. I'll introduce you to my wife. <laughs> we'll get you, Carnap said. Your psychotic figments along with you. Now, um, the this is perhaps not the best, um, but he does use some of the jargon from uh, oh, here, here it is. After a while, Carnap approached the juncture again, being careful not to step over the safety rail. An interesting theory, Miller. That's a strange part about psychotics. They rationalize their delusions into a logical system. 
a priori, which means um, they do it all in their head without right. anything with experience. Your concept stands up well. It's internally consistent only... Only what? Only it doesn't happen to be true. <laughs> so th- that's 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 exactly what Carnap and the other logical positives, positivists were trying to do. They were trying to make it so that we can't be mistaken about stuff. And they thought, you know, we can develop this giant philosophy and show that, you know, 600 angels dance on the head of a pin or something. Because, look, m- none of these statements in my my theory can be countermanded by anything internally within it. So they were saying, well, obviously that's wrong because we look at that and we don't see any angels on this head of the pin. So we'll fix the language. It sounds like uh, what Orwell did with um, mm-hmm. with Newspeak, but in reverse, where, exactly. where you couldn't hold something to be true if it was ungrammatical. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you reduce the meaning of things down by, you know, instead of having great and better, you have double plus good, right? right. Yeah. You have good or double uh, good or double good, double plus good. Right. <laughs> and and nothing can be bad because you don't need bad. You can just say ungood or double ungood. Exactly. Or double plus ungood. And then you learn, you lose phrases like dig me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I, I would have guessed. I would have guessed that that was much later. I thought that was a lot later too. Apparently not, unless Philip K. Dick had uh, particular uh, foresight of what the 20th century is like. But I think he does say it's the Eisenhower administration, right? Yep. Which yeah. is about the right time, I, I would say. I, I would assume he was not guessing who the president was. I, I think that up. can go wrong with you know the poodle skirts and bobby socks. It kind of fits into that world. <laughs> See, I know people that still use that because they're trying to have the jazz kind of vibe. <laughs> you mean the cats out there? Yeah, those cats. <laughs> yeah, there's um, it's one thing I noticed in this story, and it's that if this is a delusion, it's not really the greatest delusion. Like, you'll notice his <laughs> wife has her own bedroom. Right. And, yeah. like, he spends a lot of his time, like, when he's imagining going to work, he's like, I can't wait to be on an elevator filled with secretaries and smell their perfume. He sounds like he's kind of a repressed guy, even in his, you know, own delusion. It's it's kind of funny. Um, But of course, if he's coming from the 22nd century where he's not allowed to, you know, mingle with 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 women and he's not allowed to to marry or have children, you know, maybe he's just got a very limited uh pool of experience to draw from he says that one part about the time when men were still men (laughs) right so there's definitely some parts like it sounds like they have to give up their kids too in the second century looking imagining even farther ahead when somebody's reading this story you know like 100 years from now um they're gonna they're actually gonna be you know, I think there's something interesting happening because Eisen- I just looked it up. Eisenhower came to office in end of uh, January of 1953. So uh, not he'd been in office about a year when this story came out. Mm-hmm. And he was in office until 61. So basically the 1950s are his presidency, right? Right. Um, now, 
at the end of his presidency the United, of the United States, he said uh, something very interesting in a speech that a lot of historians think is re very relevant. It was his speech about the beware of the military-industrial complex. You guys know about that? No. Okay. Well, let me see if I can bring it up. It's 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 pretty interesting um, because he is a you know prior to um, prior to being the supreme uh, the supreme power of the United States, he was the supreme military commander in Europe uh, during World War II. He was like the head of all planning operations for D-Day and and the invasion of Europe. Um, and what's Eisenhower is an interesting guy because he, he was not um, a high-ranking officer when the war was going, but he was a super competent officer. Um, and when he was sent to Europe, he was um, uh, promoted to being the Supreme Allied Commander, five-star general. But when he returned, whenever he returned to home, uh, the United States proper, uh, he was demoted to his non-field rank. That is the just, rank. Sorry. I'm sorry, just kidding. I didn't hear it, but um, it, he was demoted to uh, colonel. He was like, that's a demotion of like six steps, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that he was chosen for the job is because he's super competent. Right. He can do the job, not because he, you know, had the most seniority and, you know, he, he, it's because at the time of war, you can't use the generals that you, you know, you have. You have to use the generals that you need if you want to win. Um, so after the war, he, you know, he'd become a hero and he became the president, very popular president, pretty much. I mean, he, he lasted both terms and then he gave this pretty interesting speech and i want to see if i can get it for you here um it ends with uh beware the military industrial industrial complex let's see here it is all right yes the conjunction of an immense, so this is um, his farewell address to the nation in January 1961. The conjunction of an immense military establishment as, and a large arms industry in the, is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, and this is the quote here, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for, this, for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of the combination endanger our liberties and democratic process. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now, I would say he had a giant uh, failure in that nobody, you know, listened to this warning he gave as his final thing. Um, and it seems like, you know, at the time in the story, they're living in a golden age in the 1950s is at least the way 
uh, Miller sees it. Right. And we don't, obviously the speech hasn't been given in Philip K. Dick's time, but the fact that um, it's the Eisenhower administration, it's before the complete takeover of of the U.S. government by, you know, this this process of, you know, fleecing the government for, for military contracts and such. Um, it, it turns us into a police state, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like um, the the golden age would be a golden age from the 22nd century where you can't get married. You, you can't quit your job. If you uh, wear a funny uniform to work, you will be subject to euthanasia. Yeah. It right? really was. It, it looks like from his perspective, that was about as good as it got. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it, it was his specialty, you know, the 20th century, but Imagine you you go you go home and you see this sort of gray, but how's he the graying of every the entire world, mm-hmm. and then he he puts his entire life into his work. You know, the even the robot thinks he's weird. Yeah, <laughs> on, the, on the bus, he's like, "What are those buttons? <laughs> oh, they're probably ornamental. Yeah, <laughs> ornamental. We don't do that." I was wondering where he got. Two centuries old tobacco, That's and what I was <laughs> how smokable is that really? <laughs> From the museum, maybe. Yeah, he maybe he soaked it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed to not quite fit in with a world that had changed so many things and gotten rid of so many of the ways of the old, where people wouldn't even recognize buttons that he could mm-hmm. still find tobacco. That's part of the yeah, reason that I kind of wondered if the future wasn't the delusion. Yeah. Yeah, the incongruities like that. Mm-hmm. This is um. And this why, is also. Why does his wife say antihist? The doctor gave him. That's oh, antihistamine. No, but did they? But was that oh. like a thing that people say? Did they say? Did they short form it like that, or is that like the good morning from his time? Yeah, it does sound like that, doesn't it? You're right. right. Yeah, it was the word gorning. Did they yeah. just gorning? Gorning. 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 <laughs> That's the transformed language that Eric's always yeah, talking about. Yeah, so there's about. like small anomalies throughout that that sort of blurred which which one was if one was real. Uh, Mark, maybe you can answer this question. Is there is Russian River near uh, Berkeley? Uh, I don't know, but probably that's where the boys <laughs> are going. Yes. Well, there, there's there's another weird incongruity. I don't know if it can be called an incongruity, but. Here's the thing. He he's a guy who runs one exhibit in a museum. He's a historian, and yet his you know his his um, transgression merits Carnap, who is described as the president of the board, the highest ranking official in the New York bran- branch of the World Directorate, mm-hmm. comes to his office to. Yeah. I mean, shouldn't he have? Like more important things to do than worry about delusions of grandeur, right? Right. Um, and I mean, like the president, president of the United States, coming on the podcast to debate me. Right. It's not likely to happen. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I mean, it could be you know a very dystopian world where maybe that is the the biggest thing happening because nobody else transgresses so like like Miller does. Maybe that's well, why he was such a threat. Yeah. Maybe history is just that important to them. <laughs> why is history that important to them? 
I, I've never seen a museum with that much. I mean, I, I was thinking that'd be a, kind of a cool thing to have. You know, like each floor, you know, you can go to a house on, you know, 17th century house, 20th century house, you know, just to see what it's like. Because we get sort of, no, we we get lots of facts and figures from history, but when we look at what people lived like, we sort of are, you know, I think we get a very distorted picture of what history you know, it would be like to live in that period of time. I think one of the best museums I've ever been to that does that really well is um, Hampton Court Palace in England, um, where Henry VIII lived, and they've re revived a lot of it for the original paintings on the ceiling. They recreate what a meal would have looked like with like the peacock with the gold gilded beak. And, you know, so you really get that impression of decadence. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess maybe that's the point I'm kind of, I'm struggling now thinking why would they even have exhibits of the past at all anyway, if they want people to subscribe to this new, you know, kind of, dystopian way of thinking you'd think that they would just want to get rid of all that information yeah and i'm well, wondering who's it for right who's going <laughs> yeah. it's true it's true um however there's another way to solve that that question and we can have it every every single way we want because there's no right answer but that's right um the other way to solve it is you have to remember this idea what i tell my students this um stories about science fiction stories about the future in the 1950s are not about the future. They're about the 1950s, right? So what's really happening in this story, probably for this guy who's dressing up, it's like you walking down the street and seeing that lady wearing that, that Star Trek uniform. We all look at her and go, what a weirdo. right? But the fact that we say what a weirdo is, not something that's wrong with her. It's something that's wrong with us. Because it, her her clothing choice doesn't affect us at all. Right? It's something for us to look at. And maybe she's doing it for the effect. And maybe not. Maybe she's just doing it for her. Maybe she's just doing it to keep warm. She couldn't find her regular clothes. In any case, it's about us. And imagine if you were uh, in the 1950s and you weren't wearing that business suit, that uniform. Right. Mm. Going to work. A lot of people I know still have to put on a uniform to go to work. I, I know a lot of people, have, you know, they have much more relaxed works, workplaces. Um, but, you know, e- you know, maybe they have it as a Friday thing only. Right. Where you can wear jeans to work on Friday. But this uniform that you put on, you put on the tie, you put on the jacket, you have the slacks that match the jacket. I, I guess it's a little easier for women maybe to not have the matching uniform, but if you don't wear that uniform, you're not going to get ahead in that business and you're going to be treated like uh, Fleming treats Miller. Maybe not Carnap treats Miller, but the way Fleming treats Miller. Yeah. And it was much more like that in the 1950s, I would say, than it is now, wouldn't you? Yeah, Absolutely. So that's one way to look at it. <laughs> it's funny how such a short story can have so many different angles. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 pretty damn good. It's got that um that you know ambiguity that you like, and um one of the things this one does that I haven't read in any of the other ones that do similar things is that it's all about the one guy. He is the entire nexus for this change. Whereas in many other stories, um, 
it's it it can spread out to other characters. So there's a really good story by Dick um, in which a girl dies and comes back to life, but when she comes back, um, she she doesn't have a, a body to come back into, so she manifests herself in everyone. Hmm. And it's it's kind of like a it's kind of like a resurrection of Jesus sort of thing. Um, but the the main character is trying to escape her because she's everywhere now. And he, he brought her back to life because he loves her. But she manifests in everyone he sees. And it sort of spreads and takes over the whole world. In another story, uh, there's a town that doesn't appear on the maps. But it's called The Commuter, in which a character... Uh, at the train station, comes and asks for a uh, ticket book to go to that town. And they say, that town doesn't exist. And he says, what do you mean it doesn't exist? And they, they look at the map, and he looks at the map, and poof, he pops out of existence. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because the town doesn't exist. Well, oh, um, this happens a couple of times, and the main, char- uh, the main character of the story says, I'm going to go investigate. And so he, he gets his girlfriend to help him investigate this this uh, this town that they know the name of. And it turns out that, you know, several years ago, there was a, a number of towns planned, and there was one that just almost got made, but there was one vote against it in some council meeting. And so it never got built. But um, he gets on the train and, because the guy keeps showing up. So he gets on the train, he goes out to the spot on the, on the train track where it should be. And there's sort of the gray mist and he walks into the gray mist and he goes through the gray mist and Hey, he's in a town, right? And everybody there is just as real as you and I. And he comes out of the town and he wants to tell everybody, but as he's going back, the, he starts seeing like businesses that were in the town, you know, like chain businesses. I like, uh, I don't know, McDonald's or something. Something that was in that town is also in neighboring towns that he'd never seen before. Right? Sort of, Mm -hmm. you're walking down the street and say, I never saw they had one of these here. Right? (laughs) Sort of thing. When he gets home, he runs into the house. He's really worried that the whole world's changing. And he sees his wife and and his kid are, they're fine and okay. And he's a little discombobulated, but everything's going to be all right. But if you're a very careful reader, you notice that at the beginning, he didn't have a wife and kid. He had a girlfriend, Ooh. and the couch was blue, and it wasn't green, right? And there was no kid, and they were not married, and, you know, like, so that changed the whole world, right? Including then, him. Including him, and only the reader could see that. So That's, that's not that sim- dissimilar from this one. Exactly. Right. Except it's just the it might be just the one guy, or it might be the whole world. But the way it's told, you know, whether the total destruction is is for it, on either side of that door, right? We don't know what how the two worlds interact with each other. They might be linked. They might be completely separate. One might be within the other. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It is. And what's weird is this is not really science fiction in the normal sense. It's got a a setting in the future, but all the action takes place in the past. Yeah. I also have a a funny vision of a man who is completely delusional that hangs out on the set of a museum. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There's that version, too, where he's just, you know, talking. It's really just like a a static set that he's... (laughs) 
Yeah. I like that version too. <laughs> and, you know, as our, our world gets, you know, we can create sort of simulated worlds like uh, Second Life and that sort of thing. People are starting to live more in, you know, the fantasy worlds of, of computer-generated realities that are much um, much more advanced than they could have been in the past. You know, if you wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons years ago, you, you did it all in your head. There was no physical reality. Well, they made it so that you can see a physical world around you, like World of Warcraft. A lot of people sort of grind during their day job, and then they go home and they grind on World of Warcraft. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of weird because it is like a second job, except they're they're living their idealized relationships, and the gold that they have is sort of real, right? They can sort of sell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sort of has value, which is kind of weird. Eventually, aren't we going to be able to just say, yeah, there's no distinguishing between between the you'd be the weird one who didn't do that, right? It's good stuff. A lot of depth in these. Old PKD stories. Yeah, there's um, there's another one that's kind of similar to this uh, called uh, Breakfast at Twilight, mm. um, and it's about a family, uh, you know, typical 1950s family, just like Miller mm-hmm. finds, um, and they wake up one morning, uh, the kids leave the house to go to school, and then the kids come back and they're like, yeah, there's this, you know, there's just like this great fog everywhere. Or yeah, and, yeah and these soldiers told us to come back and the soldiers come in and they're like what's this house still doing here how do you have all this food like and they're traitors yeah. yeah and and it turns out they've traveled traveled eight years into the future um where the cold war has heated up and 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 their entire neighborhood's gone um it's it's a whole lot uh it's a whole lot more heavy-handed than this story mm-hmm. Um, but it's got that same vibe of, you know, this idealized um, suburban lifestyle um, against the reality of, of a coming apocalypse. You know, it, 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 did you check and see if the main characters in that household, are they the Millers? <laughs> oh, because I don't know. <laughs> if they were, that would be the companion piece to this one. Yeah. It. It sounds like after the cobalt bombs have dropped, you know. Right. Yeah. No. In in this story, it's um, it's like a fleet of Russian robots, uh, probably what we would call drones uh, these days. It, yeah. It's 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 kind of you know it, it's about the time period, and you know you get these worries about about nuclear war, right? As you know, the primary uh, fear and. When I show these stories to kids, they don't understand that fear that I I, I assume we all live. Jenny, you're the youngest here, I think. Maybe Mark's young youngest. It's hard to say. How old are you, Mark? I'm 32. Oh, yeah. he's just a baby. Yep, <laughs> just a baby. Um, do you remember being afraid of nuclear war? Uh, no. I yeah. totally remember being afraid of nuclear war. <laughs> if, if you grew up in the 80s. Um, that I, I understand that it was in the 70s and the 60s too, and they seem to have a lot more reason for it in the 60s, maybe. But it was it was like the fear that people had. When I was young, my cousins and I would, you know, scare each other with Russian spy stories. Um, <laughs> but I remember more severely growing up being afraid of AIDS. That was the big one. Yeah, 
You're a little younger. Mm-hmm. How old are you, Jenny? I'm 35, but we started okay. AIDS education in kindergarten, so that was the big fear-mongering topic in my childhood. It, it, it doesn't seem as dangerous, though, you know, as... Oh, no, it's been... Imagining at any time, <laughs> we pop, like, maybe four seconds warning before we're completely destroyed. You remember that, Miso? I, that yeah, link? I completely do. Being out in the schoolyard and, and people saying, people, like, talking about how we were, the bomb was going to drop any day, any second. And you, you, there's, like... The warning would be, you know, the military would get the warning, but the people wouldn't. And there's nothing you can do. And I was thinking, well, I'm in Canada. That's kind of safer, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're targeting the United States. I, I was thinking, like, I, I was looking up, like, blast radiuses. <laughs> where could I, if I had enough time, where could I go to? It's terrifying. And that is, I mean, that's much scarier than, you know, buildings being knocked down by terrorists or, you know, like, nuclear war is... It's like the biggest boogeyman there is. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of, you know, we, we can find all sorts of things to be afraid of. And it might be the case that, you know, uh, we can only get up to a certain fear level and then everything past that is just sort of noise. But it, it's like when when the Cold War seemed to have ended, I, I, I was thinking, God, things are going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> We don't have this oppressive chance of being completely destroyed at any minute now. Hmm. Very much, Mark. Oh, you're yeah, welcome. Really good job. <laughs> it was great. Um, I just wanted to know what other books you've narrated and how how long you've been doing this. Tell us a little bit more about that part. Um, I've been narrating audiobooks since uh, 2009. Um, I mostly uh, a lot of the books that I do are um, sort of nerdy uh, kids books. Um, hmm. Like, I just did um, this book called uh, Pie in the Sky uh, by Wendy Mass, and that's about, um, it's, uh, the main character is the son of the supreme overlord of the universe, and uh, he's, uh, Earth has been removed entirely from history, and so he's got to recreate everything from the ground up. It's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. It's like fun. Yeah. Uh. It looks it's a recorded books book. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's where I got my start. Nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed your voices and everything too, so it's a great uh, did a wonderful job. If if uh, Mark weren't here I would explain uh to Jenny. He's he's like a Kirby Hayborn type. He's got that youthful voice. Mm-hmm. He's got uh good good diction, you know. What do you think of that comparison, Mark? Uh you know, I uh, I, I think uh, I heard you on a previous podcast saying that about me. <laughs> probably said the same thing, yeah. Um, so I, I wasn't really aware of Kirby Hayborn, but he, he seems like a pretty successful guy, so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, he oh, seems to have the niche brother. of uh, zombie books. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> zombies and a lot of urban fantasy. Yeah. Yep. 
Let's see, Kirby uh, Hayborn. Yeah, he did Little Brothers. I think that's the one I I clued into him from. Uh huh. Oh, he was Great in Doctor. in Cloud Atlas and Gone Girl. Yeah. Shadows in Flight. Okay. Oh, is he a movie star as well? Oh no no no. He he's he's one of the narrators of the uh-huh. book. I gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. Well, Maiso, I don't think we've had you on the podcast before. I was I was thinking um if if this one wasn't happening I might ask you for a uh first episode of your show. Oh. You want the first episode of my show one day? Yeah, to put on the podcast. What would you say to that? I'd say absolutely. Okay, well, um, uh, you guys need to check out her podcast. It's a it, it's a limited series, I guess, or mini series audio drama. Uh, Mark will appreciate it more, I think, because it's Canadian. <laughs> it's uh, main character is a CSIS agent who is much like our main character in this story. Uh, he doesn't fit in with everybody else, but that's because he's really competent at his job. And everybody else is totally incompetent, which is probably accurate to the to the uh, intelligence agencies. And they're trying to kill him too. What's that? And they're also trying to kill him too. That's true. Just like in this one. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't see the parallels, but you're right. They're, they are there. Um, and uh, it's a comedy. It's really good. Cool. So I'll put that on the po- in a podcast in the future, and everybody will enjoy that. Yeah, sounds great. Okay. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.